Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. Glad you could make it out. Uh, I told you last week that the first ministry job I had, I was 23 years old, and this church in Iowa was like, yep, you come work for us. You be the guy. And the, the first time, you know, when you're young, you sometimes think, oh, yeah, I got it. I got it figured out. How hard it, can it be? You know, you just YouTube videos, how to run a church. And um, the first time I realized that I was weighing over my head is this couple came for marriage counseling. And I asked them how long they'd been married, and they'd been married 25 years at that point. And I was like, oh my goodness, they've been married longer than I've been alive. What, what in the world am I going to tell them? I, don't, I have no clue what to do. Uh, anyway, the very first thing that happened at that church when I was uh, starting out there is, uh, you know, w- when you're young and you're eager and you're, you're, uh, you, you have confidence but you, you maybe lack knowledge, is you want to prove yourself. You want to like get out there and make an impact in the community. You want to see new faces in the building. You want to see baptisms. You want to see, you just want to see progress. You want to see change. And I had been there a month and man, we hadn't had any baptisms. We hadn't had any progress. We hadn't had any change. And I'm feeling like this is the starting gate of my ministry. And I'm just like falling flat on my face right at the beginning. They said, uh, Patrick, one of the things we've been meaning to do for a while is to repave the driveway. Can you lead that project? And I said, sure. We didn't have Google, at, at least the way we do now, but I would have Googled how to repave a driveway because uh, I had no idea where to start. I needed to find someone. I needed to hire someone to do this. I didn't know how much it cost. I didn't know anything about it. I'm driving down the street one day on the way to church, and I see this long-haired guy about my age, and he's pouring concrete in a driveway, and I'm like, that, there, that guy. I'm going to go talk to that guy. So I pull over, and I said, hey, can you do that? down the road at our church. And he said, sure. And I'm like, deal. And I didn't, no second bids, no how good of a job is he doing. I don't know, is he the homeowner here? And he's just like, yeah, I guess I'm doing concrete now. I had no, no idea. And kind of right in the middle of all this, you know, because I'm feeling like such a failure in the ministry, I say, hey, uh, although if you take this job, uh, you're going to have to come to church, you know. And he thought I was joking, but I really wasn't joking. I was like, you got to come to church. I got to have something to show for this effort, you know, that they're paying, this church is paying me. Um, so he came to church that Sunday, shocked, like, whoa, oh, you are here. I wasn't actually expecting it. He sits, uh, he comes to church and he starts studying the Bible with me. And he and his wife start studying the Bible with me and Corrine. And um, I learned his name's Billy. Her name's Sarah. And Billy was the first person I'd ever studied the Bible with. And he was the first person I'd ever baptized. Now, Billy is a wild man because his job right now, and he's been doing it for about 20 years, is he runs a carnival. Like he has trucks and rides and food and they drive around the country to different places and he runs a carnival. And you know what Billy does at these carnivals? He hires these guys. And you know the type of people you hire for a carnival? You know Carney? He hires these guys and he has Bible studies with them and he baptizes them. I don't know how many people he has baptized through this, you know, hey, if you want to work for me, uh, you've, uh, you've got to get baptized. I mean, it's bribery, but I guess <laughs> you do what you got to do. 
And Billy has had this incredible impact for the kingdom. In fact, the thing that made me think about this is the text that we're going to be talking about deals with some of this. But the thing that made me think about this is he texted me this week and he just said, oh, I have just this random question. And it just took me back 20 plus years to when we were first studying the Bible together. His daughter runs the youth group at their church. Uh, their family was just out in a, in a camp, a Colorado family camp that a bunch of people were at. I mean, they're still doing things for the kingdom. When he's not doing the carnival, like when it's the off season, when it's cold and you don't host carnivals, I guess. He drives around the country with his stuff and he provides relief if there's storms. I mean, he drives to places and just helps out. And this is the kind of guy that Billy is. And I just think about all the time that I had zero idea what I was doing um, and I just was driving by and there's this guy and he's pouring concrete and God just kicked this door wide open for me to have this connection. And I just want to be clear, it has nothing to do with me. I, I mean, I didn't, I'm sure every single thing that I taught him was wrong. The only thing that I did was, was put him down in the water and bring him back up. That's the only like value that I had. Billy was searching for an open door and God allowed me to be the person that, that helped him find it. But he was going to find it one way or another. And I was thinking about this week, it's kind of like the experience of, <laughs> of being an extension cord. You don't really do anything. You just help someone else get plugged into Jesus. And, and it, it's an amazing experience and it's just incredible. I feel, I feel so much unwarranted pride years later to have been a part of that and then to, con to continue to see the impact that Billy's having and his children are having in the world. Just this, this open door that he just... He just worked out. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. Now, I have had many more closed doors. Many more, no thanks, not interested. Church isn't for me. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. Church is a scam. Even as much as people saying church is abusive, church is bogus, preachers are just trying to get rich. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you can check my bank account. But there's a lot of closed doors. That happens all the time too. But I've, I, I just wondered if in the room, if any of you have someone that kind of bubbles up to the surface of your mind when you think about, man, I would really like to figure out how to help that person get plugged into Jesus. How could I be that extension cord? How could I bring them to that open door? I don't know where to start. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say to them, but how could I help them? And it, my guess is just about everybody in the room has someone in mind that they would like to see get connected to Jesus. And for some of you, you're the person. You're thinking, I would like to be more connected. I will, I'm looking for an open door. I want to be more deeply connected to Jesus. But for a lot of us, it's just this, this opportunity to go out in the world and, and we don't even know what we're doing, but every once in a while, God will bring us to a place where someone that we deeply care about and, and our love and our desire for Jesus get to come together and we get to play a part in someone walking through an open door of faith. The last half of the book of Colossians, we're in this series, Colossians, the whole, whole summer we've been talking through the book of Colossians, 10 weeks doing this, and then the last half, starting in chapter 3, we've been trying to explore what does it mean to live as transformed people, but living in this untransformed world. What is that, how does that work? What does that look like? And I think part of the experience, part of a, a wide variety of experiences, is that to live as transformed people with different priorities and values and beliefs in an untransformed world is like driving a boat on a calm lake. You create a wake it behind you. And for some people, that's very disturbing. They don't like that. They don't like what you're doing. They don't like what you believe. They don't like what you think. And they don't like the way that you're interacting with the world. 
But for other people, it's intriguing. They're, they're curious. They're wondering. And like Billy, they're wondering, they're looking, they're searching, and God has these opportunities for us. Billy did not come to church because I had some sort of awesome presentation or because I was an amazing studier of the Bible. There was none of that. Billy came to church because God was working in his life, and I just got to be that extension cord. So, so what is it for us? How do we think about this for us? When we think about the stories in the Bible, we often think of Jesus teaching miracles, or even if you think about the stories in the early church with the, uh, with the apostles, a lot, they, they were drawing these crowds and there were, uh, there were all these miraculous things happening. And you can imagine, of course, yes, people would come to church if we were doing miraculous things, right? If there were miracles happening, people would be like, ah, I'm gonna show up, that's gonna be awesome, I wanna see it, I wanna check it out for myself. But a lot of the stories of the Bible have nothing to do with the miraculous. For example, in Acts chapter 16, there's this story of Paul and Silas. Paul, an apostle, and somebody that's with him on this missionary journey. They get arrested because people don't like what they're doing. They get arrested. They get put in prison. They're just hanging out in prison. And there's an earthquake, breaks open the prison. And you would think Paul and Silas are like, this is our opportunity to escape. There's no like international database. There's no fingerprint system. There's no Roman Empire most wanted. They could leave and be done, scot-free, no problems. And yet... They realize that if they leave in the Roman system, the jailer has to pay the punishment for the prisoner that escaped. So they have to suffer the consequences for the prisoners that escaped. And so Paul and Silas stay put. And in the story in Acts chapter 19, the jailer realizes the prison has been broken open and he's about to kill himself because he wants to do it before the authorities can do it to him. And Paul says, hang on, buddy, we're all here. Don't hurt yourself. And in that moment, the jailer runs to these guys. The Bible literally says in the book of Acts, he falls on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? Open door. Literally an open door in the jail, but open door for the gospel. Not because Paul did anything supernatural, but because Paul was just considering other people ahead of himself. Paul was loving his neighbor. The same thing that we're asked to do. In Acts chapter 19, this is a weird story too. There's this small group of believers that had been practicing witchcraft and they're converted and they no longer want to practice witchcraft. They don't even want the guidebooks and the handbooks, the, the scrolls that they were using to learn these practices to exist in the world. So they gather them up and they take them out and they burn them. They have this giant pile and they burn this thing and tons of people come out like, what are you doing? And the book of Acts chapter 19 says they burned 50,000 drachmas of material. And a drachma is about a day's wages. So it could have been, I don't know, a couple million dollars. And the townspeople are watching this. And it says, the text literally says, and in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power because Christians were trying to take out of the world something that had been dark and led them astray. They weren't doing anything crazy. They weren't doing anything wild. They were just doing what Christians should do in any age, open door. There's story after story like this of these open doors. And I hesitate to say pattern because we like to turn patterns into formulas, formulas that we can control, and it's just never like that. But here's what it is. It's followers of Jesus. Guess what? In some sense, that's us. It's followers of Jesus, boldly living, transformed lives. And some people are going to hate it, and some people are going to be interested and there's going to be open doors for you to talk and point them in the right direction or just get them plugged into Jesus. 
So in this part of Colossians, Paul turns his attention to this idea. How do we recognize and respond to these beautiful, magical moments where you can be part of someone's walk of redemption back into Christ or into Christ, and you can, 20 years from now, you can think about the way that Christ has radically altered the trajectory of their lives and their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives. How do we recognize, how do we respond to those opportunities, those moments? My uh, nephew, nephew um, Anthony, he's, uh, he's the same age as Liam, so he and Liam are pals. And Anthony, he is just a different kid. He's just, he's kind of in his own world, one of those kids where you just, you're like, what is going on in that brain? But he was at school one time, and uh, he had called home because he had gone to the nurse complaining that he was sick. The nurse suspected that he had a case of, I don't want to be at school-itis. And so she thought, well, if she call, if he calls his mom, then his mom can kind of talk him out of it. So he calls his mom, nurse puts him on the phone with mom, and he starts reciting a long list of his ailments and symptoms on the phone. So, you know, I think he's trying to bolster a case for going home early. So it's stuff like, you know, mom, I have a headache and a runny nose and a cough. Now, somewhere in this long list of symptoms, Anthony kind of goes on autopilot my sister was telling us about this. I think this is funny. And he forgets that he's convincing his mom that he's sick and needs to go home. And he turns it into a prayer. So the conversation went something like this. He goes, Mom, I have a headache and a runny nose and a cough and my stomach hurts and my, 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 my head hurts. And in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. <laughs> On the phone with his mom. And I thought that was kind of, you know, first of all, it's cute. Secondly, it's kind of funny where this list of ailments turns into a prayer. It makes us wonder what we've done with prayer life. But he had gone on autopilot. He had fallen asleep at the prayer wheel, so to speak. You know, you've done that too, right? You've been praying and all of a sudden you like kind of come to thinking, I have not been praying. I've been thinking about this, all this other stuff, right? We've kind of fallen asleep at the prayer wheel, so to speak. And it makes sense to me that Paul would write toward the end of the book of Colossians, Colossians 4.2, where he'd say, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. You have to pay attention because if you don't pay attention to what you're praying, you kind of just get into these rote routines and it's not really life-giving or life-building and you wonder why you're praying. Now, what he says to pray for, he says, hey, be watchful and thankful. Pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. He's in prison. He's not talking about let me out of prison. He's just saying, I want opportunities here. To pray, and he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And I want you to think about the implications of what Paul's asking. Think about this. This to me is really wild, and I was a little overcome with the idea this week. What Paul is saying when he's saying, pray for open doors. So I want you to take a person, maybe that's a name or a face that's swirling in your mind, and you're thinking, yeah, I would love to get them plugged into Jesus, plugged into church, plugged into spirituality. They do need Jesus. Maybe it's because they just seem like such a good person already. They would just be a natural fit. Or maybe because their life has hit rock bottom to the degree that like there is nowhere to go but up. But you've got that name. You've got that face. You've got that person in your life that you would like to pray for, for an open door. Now, notice what he, Paul's actually asking. To pray that God would intervene in someone's life. To, ch to change the circumstances of their day or the condition of their heart to allow the message of the gospel to get inside. That's what Paul is asking us to pray. 
This is a wild idea. I've read this passage I don't know how many times, and I never acknowledge the fact that Paul is asking us to pray for a miracle in someone's life. That's what he's asking for. He's, pray, he's saying, pray to God that he will arrange the conditions, arrange the circumstances, arrange the attitudes of their mind and heart so that they will be open and receptive to the idea that they need something more than what their life is offering right now. Pray for that. Now, there's a tension here. This is important because this, does, this tension I'm about to describe does not apply to some of you. Some of you are like, I don't even get what you're talking about. I can't even relate. But there's enough of us in the room including me, and you, whether or not you know it, you have people in your lives who struggle with this tension, specifically with regard to prayer, to pray for something miraculous, to pray for something deep. And again, it's not everyone, but there's enough of us that we've got to address it. It's much bigger than our text, so we're going to zoom way out and then we're going to come back in. Thomas Jefferson famously took a copy of the Bible and a exacto knife and he cut out, literally cut out. I have a picture of it here if you want to put it up. Literally cut out of the Bible uh, all the sections that had any reference to the miraculous. So any healings, any demons being cast, cast out, any, anything that was supernatural, Thomas Jefferson was like, listen, I don't think we can handle that. I don't know that I believe in that. I do really appreciate what Jesus is saying, but I'm not sure I want all that extra stuff. So he called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And you can buy copies. This is a Smithsonian copy. You can't buy that one uh, unless you're um, Nicolas Cage and you steal it. But you can buy copies of this thing, and it's called The Life and Morals of Jesus Christ. I don't re necessarily recommend it because it's a heavily edit edited version of the Scripture. Most people call it the Jefferson Bible. Now, what Jefferson physically did was what a lot of us mentally do. We think, how can I take in like the beautiful way that Jesus said to be human, to love your neighbor, to, 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 to walk in a way of kindness and grace and love? How can I take that but kind of eliminate the embarrassing supernatural stuff? And Jefferson lived in a moment in time where people were, they were like, we're figuring out the world. We've got this stuff figured out. We don't need supernatural answers. We don't need the miraculous. We've got science. We've got it. And so it was embarrassing to think that Jesus, while he would say these beautiful, wonderful things, that he was also healing people and doing supernatural things. They found that embarrassing and they wanted to separate those two different ways of being. The, the deal is, though, we predominantly live in a world that we've inherited that is like that, where people do not acknowledge or believe in or accept the supernatural. Now, we are in a church, and I think maybe it's fair for us to say, like, yeah, we kind of think that it works, but I, I guarantee you, because it has for me, that way of thinking, of wanting to push away, wanting to accept the good of Jesus, but push away all that weird supernatural stuff, we've inherited that. We live in a world that wants to do that, and here's the problem. It has infected our prayer life to the degree that when we pray, we rarely ask, and, I, and I'm saying we because I'm talking about myself and several people in here because some of you are awesome at this, but many of us rarely pray for anything supernatural. We rarely pray that God would do anything amazing and miraculous. Listen, now some of you are like, wait, I, I pray for the supernatural. Good for you. Here's what I had done. If someone had said, hey, uh, Patrick, my, you know, second cousin's aunt once removed on my mother's side's former roommate has cancer, would you pray for them? What I would do in my mind is, of course, I would say yes, yes, I'll pray for them. But I would pray that 
the chemotherapy would work, not that God would heal them. Do you understand that distinction? I would pray that the doctors would know what they were doing and prescribe the right medications, not that God would actually intervene in their life and remove that sickness from them. Do you understand that? Does anybody else deal with that, deal with that distinction, or is that just me? Oh, good news. I have studied a whole sermon. I am preaching it to myself today. That's wonderful, but that's fine. That's fine. Because I think a lot, a lot of us unthinkingly accept that worldview that, that we've inherited from Jefferson. So for long stretches of my life, my Christian life, my prayer life was utterly anemic. I wouldn't really pray that God would do anything amazing. I would just pray that things would happen as they were supposed to happen. And if that person died, everybody could be comforted and everything could go smoothly in the will and all that. That's all I'd really pray for because I had decided that God doesn't really do that miraculous. That stuff seems, that's a little extreme to pray for that kind of thing. That's a little extreme. God doesn't move mountains today. We have heavy machinery to do that. God doesn't heal cancer today. We have chemotherapy and radiation to do that, so we don't need to ask for those things. I would pray, that's too central to ignore, but I would pray for the rational, logical thing to happen. Now, by the way, modern medicine is a marvel. Ricky Gervais, who's kind of an aggressive uh, atheist and a stand-up comedian, talks about like, hey, if, if somebody I know has cancer and a uh, Christian says I'll be praying for them, he's like, that's wonderful. He's like, I don't think it does any good, but that's wonderful. Sure, pray for them. But if they go on to say, and I canceled the chemo, no, 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 don't do that. And I think it's important for us, I'm not getting up here saying, you know, if you've got some sickness, if you've got a broken leg and somebody's like, we're going to call 911 for you, you're like, nope, nope, nope. Just get Patrick over here. He'll pray it and it'll be okay. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue for that. I'm just trying to say that I have eliminated, I had eliminated so many requests that I could make of God because I just assumed God wouldn't do anything wild, out of the ordinary, and crazy. I'd bought into that Jeffersonian worldview without even thinking about it. But here's the silliness of this. Prayer, by definition, is interaction with the supernatural. By definition, you're saying, I am praying to a supernatural divine being that I cannot see. And I, Patrick, was saying, but I'm not going to ask for that being to do anything supernatural. How silly is that? And you know what ends up happening? You know what's at the end of that pathway of thinking? Is you just don't pray at all. You just don't pray at all. Why? What good does prayer do if I don't think God's actually going to intervene in the circumstances of people's lives? G.K. Chesterton became a Christian because he said, this world does not explain itself. And he lived in an era where people were explaining everything through uh, the scientific method. And he was like, no, 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 that's not good enough to actually fully explain the world. And his big problem with science wasn't the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. That's where a lot of people go to. His big problem was the problem of joy. He was saying the world, there's no explanation for why we love sitting around a campfire laughing with friends that we've told the same stories to hundreds of times. That doesn't make sense. There's no explanation unless there exists a supernatural being who created us to enjoy joy and to love love. The world does not explain itself. Why would a song move me? Why would I listen to a song and get chills 
if there's no scientific explanation for that. It says the world does not explain itself. So God has been working on me. God's been working on me. I recently had an experience that was so profoundly moving as a result and an answer to prayer that, <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable for me. It was unbelievable, and it was very personal, and it just kind of drove me to the conclusion the world does not explain itself. I meekly requested that God would do something that I thought was impossible, and God did that thing. Now, I know you're sitting there saying, well, tell us what it is. <laughs> I'm not going to. First of all, it's my experience. But secondly, it's much better to listen to a song for yourself than it is for me to try to describe it to you or sing it to you. It's much better for you to see a painting than it is for me to try to tell you what it looks like. And what I'm asking is that maybe you take this idea of prayer that seems so silly and irrational and you give it a chance. And, and maybe, what, here's the thing, right? What if God doesn't answer? Then I have to wrestle with doubt and uncertainty. And is it even true? And I've been there. I have totally been there. I've had prayers that I didn't feel like God had answered. But here's the other question I'm wrestling with, and that is equally as scary. What if God does answer? And I have been existing for so long, neglecting this being in my life that wants to provide joy and beauty and goodness and truth and wants to create opportunities for me to help other people plug into him. And I have just been neglecting the opportunity to ask for those things. James writes to his audience, you do not have because you do not ask. And so the worldview that Paul and Jesus presume to be true and Paul is stating here is he's saying, ask that God will open doors. Now, I know some of you are like, I've been praying for this, my, my, my sister, my grandmother, my niece for a long time, and there's no open doors. I understand that it brings a lot of questions, but I'm telling you, this is what Paul is asking us to pray for here. Part of my anemic prayer life, I'll share this with you, is a confession. When I would pray for this kind of stuff, I would just be like, God, be with everybody everywhere. It makes the prayer time really short and sweet, but it's nothing. And I'm, I'm telling you, the way that I do it, I've been getting real specific so that there's no doubt whether or not God is answering this, real specific. And I'm just telling you, it, consistent, reaching out to God, asking him to intervene in the circumstances of people's lives, and I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. Now, you can be, you can be Jefferson here. You can be Jefferson in the audience. You could be like, ah, confirmation bias, Patrick. It's just coincidence. There's no supernatural. That's fine. If you want to live in that world, that's fine. But the world does not explain itself. The world does not explain itself. So pray that God would open doors. And maybe the prayer needs to be for you. God, please open a door in my life. I don't see this. I don't feel this. I don't understand this. Please open a door for me. But then what? Then what? Every year... Um, we go on this mission trip to Mexico with a bunch of teenagers and, and uh, lots of people have been over and over and over again. And if you've been multiple times, you know that you're going to hear the same speech at the beginning of the week that you've heard for the last 15 years. Same exact speech. And the speech goes something like this. Don't drink the water out of the tap. The toilet paper doesn't go in the toilet. You guys are wondering what about that one. Mm, let me tell you. 
Pass it, or uh, pedestrians do not have the right of way on the street. You'll get run over. But one of the pieces of advice that we hear every single year is we're in this town and we're walking in parts of the city that a lot of tourists aren't walking through uh, is they say, be aware that you stand out. And it's not just the fact that there's about 30 gringos walking down the street, but it, some of it is, is where the home is there. When you walk out there, at least the way that we do it, you walk through the jungle literally for about 200 yards. You're walking through the jungle. There's this little trail and there's all this overgrowth and you're walking through the jungle. And I've thought, I don't know how many times what people must think as we're leaving Ciudad. We've been working all morning. We're gross and sweaty and dirty and we're covered with paint. And 30 of white, white people who are sunburned, they're emerging from the jungle out into the town. What must people think? We stand out. People notice. I can imagine, like, you will never believe what I saw today. Yeah, right out of the jungle. Uh huh. Yeah, covered in paint. It's the craziest thing. They must think that we're nuts. You stand out. But what they tell us when we go down there is listen, whether you want this to be true or not, and you probably don't, but people will be drawing conclusions about all Americans because of how you behave. All Americans, whether we want that to be true or not, that is what happens. And can I tell you, tourists, American tourists, have created a little reputational deficit in many countries in the world. Um, they get drunk, they get loud. They buy some ridiculous sombrero and they start talking with a Mexican accent and then they speak down to the, the wait staff and it's just, it's not a good look. Those of you that have been on this trip, you go down to the area where most tourists are and you're like, I don't like this very much. This isn't real. This isn't true. This isn't honest. I don't like, and I don't like the fact that I might be associated with those people walking around with yard-long margaritas yelling at everybody. I don't want any of that. You, whether you want to or not, you represent all Americans. And then they tell us you actually represent Ciudad, too. When people look at you and you say, oh, yeah, I've been working all week at Ciudad, what you do, they're going to make judgments about what's happening out here. And so they're like, hey, behave, be good, be kind, be nice. Try to help how to eliminate some of that reputational deficit. Believe it or not, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but people who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be Christians, have created a reputational deficit in the world. There are people, not everybody, but there are people who, when you tell them, oh yeah, I go to church, or yeah, I'm a Christian, they're going to be like, ooh, okay, yeah, I know, I know what category to fit you in. That's true. And it's not everybody, but there are enough ridiculous people out in the world behaving very poorly who also claim to be Christians that it creates this little uphill challenge for us. Some is unearned, but some we've done to ourselves. I was at a coffee shop that was right across the street from a giant church, and uh, I, I was just thinking, hmm, interesting. I bet you Sunday mornings that coffee shop is jam-packed with people going to and from church. And then I thought, hmm, I'm kind of curious what kind of reputation the people on Sunday mornings before church and after church have created. And so, you know, because I'm an extrovert and I work at a church, although I didn't tell them that, I said, hey, uh, do you, 
Uh, can I ask you, I was talking to these baristas, can I ask you, what's the, what's the hardest or worst time to work during the week? And the two baristas looked at each other, didn't say anything, looked back at me, and they said, Sunday morning. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Oh, that's really too bad. Uh, can you tell me why? And they said, because everybody's rude and they're all in a hurry because they're running late for church. And here's the killer. They don't tip. Can you believe it? Christians don't tip. And so I said, well, give me my coffee. I'm not giving you any money. I'm out here. No. <laughs> I mean, why change things if that's the idea you have? But I was like, that's, that's terrible. That's terrible. I mean, that should be the easiest thing in the world for people across the street from a church building to be like, oh, these Christians, they're nuts. The things they believe are crazy, but they're so good and they're great tippers. That should be a thing for us. Christians should be known for those kinds of things, right? I worked overnights as a waiter, overnights as a waiter. My shift started at 11 p.m. and it ended at 7 a.m. Do you know who our biggest crowd was? The bars shut down. People don't want to go home, but they can't stay there. So they went to the Denny's and I happily served them because drunk people are pretty good tippers because they don't know. I've more than one occasion had people come back the next day and like, did I give you $50 as a tip? And I'm like, you sure did, buddy. It's in the bank already. It's your fault. Shouldn't get drunk. But if you were to ask the wait staff at that restaurant, would they rather work at 2 a.m. when people are maybe throwing up and passing out in the booth or would they rather work Sunday morning? Always 2 a.m., always 2 a.m. As Christians, whether this is you or not, but you get, to, you get to bear the name Christ, Christians have created a reputational deficit. Some Christians are obnoxious, nobody in this room, no, but other Christians, right? Sometimes our response to that and this is wrong in fact I would say it's sinful uh, but it's it's a temptation is to try to create distance from the whole concept of Christianity just to downplay the whole thing so that you know we don't really have to accept it or we could do as Paul writes here Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 be wise in the way you walk toward outsiders or act toward outsiders. Make the most of every, every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is what he says to do. Now, when I was a teenager growing up in the church, there was this kind of trend thing to do, uh, and that was to, to wear Christian T-shirts. You know what I mean by Christian T-shirts? These weren't necessarily shirts that were like, you know, had the word Jesus on them. It was, it was always something kind of subtle, and although this isn't very subtle, but it was, I, they were trying too hard. The one, I didn't show you this. I was tempted to show you this, and now that I'm talking about it, well, there's no turning back now. There was one, and they don't sell it anymore. Thank the Lord. I think he put it out of commission. You can still find it on eBay, though. But it's the Budweiser logo, and it says Budweiser Up. And then it's got all these verses on it. You know, so I'm just imagining people walking around with a Budweiser shirt, although, you know, unless you look really closely, you're just advertising Budweiser for them. But there's a lot of this kind of stuff, like catch up with Jesus, let us praise and relish him. That is so ridiculous. Uh, there's a whole series of condiment... Shirts. I, let me, can I just say this right now? I do not want any of these. If some of you are like Amazon, I'm sending them to Patrick's home. I won't wear them, right? I'm not going to wear them because they're ridiculous. The, the mayo one doesn't even make sense. Mayo, let it shine. I don't, may your light shine. You guys don't know either. Like, we just, it doesn't make sense. 
My guess is that never in the history of mankind has anyone been wearing one of these shirts and had someone walk up to them looking really humble and contrite saying, hey man, your shirt really convicted me. I'm really feeling like I need to catch up with Jesus. Can we do that right now? No, it doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. Instead, what Paul talks about is character and then, interestingly, conversation. Character and conversation. Now, character's obvious, right? That's obvious. But conversation's interesting to me. Now, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think it's surprising necessarily, but it's really intriguing to me that he says, hey, make sure your conversation, your speech is full of grace, seasoned with salt. Because I think what he's getting at to some degree is that we don't, Christians don't need to participate in the negativity. You know how many work relationships are just built around the fact that you and your coworker also dislike the same person and there's just gossip or you complain about the job or you complain about the manager. I think that's what he's getting at is don't let that be who you are. Your words are a reflection of your heart. Allow people to have a glimpse inside that something true and something real and something good, something full of grace and seasoned with salt. Now, again, sometimes when we talk about character, people get a little nervous. They're like, oh man, I got to be perfect so that people will see Jesus in me. No, no, no. Hit the brakes on that idea. Nobody in your life thinks that you're perfect or thinks that you will be perfect or you can be perfect. What people are looking for is redemption. And you can model that. Anybody can model that. You can't model perfection, but you can model redemption. And let me tell you, that's a million times more attractive. If you're trying to be perfect, people know that's inauthentic. If you're trying to be redemptive, people know there's something there. But I want to talk about the, the, the conversation, full of grace, seasoned with salt. The, the idea, the, the, the phrase uh, seasoned with salt was an ancient um, Roman or Greek idiom for the, for the idea of wit, like a lively conversation. Have you ever been part of a uh, like small talk? Maybe it's with other parents at school or, you know, maybe it's a coworker that you don't know really well. And it's just like excruciating. You feel like you're dying inside. Like this is awful. How do I exit this? I don't know. This is, we both know this is terrible. That's the opposite of what he's talking about here. Um, I wanted to give you another example real quick uh, of G.K. Chesterton. He's just this amazing, brilliant guy. Wrote all these wonderful works, works. If you're looking for something to read by him, you should read Orthodoxy. Wrote a lot of novels too. But he would do these um, debates with people. And I guess because people didn't have a lot going on, they would pack these places, pack these buildings when they're having debates. So it's G.K. Chesterton and it's guys like Bertrand Russell, you know, just kind of a famous hardcore atheist at the time. And they represent kind of that Jeffersonian point of view that there's no God, there's no miraculous, there's none of that. And you have these two guys, room full of people, and G.K. Chesterton is this kind of jovial looking guy and he would come out on stage and he had scraps of paper tucked into pockets and he would like be brushing back his hair and people loved this guy. And when you read about these debates, you can't see it on the page, but his debate opponents would say Chesterton would win the day, not because of his ration and logic or rationale and logic, not because of he was so good or so eloquent, but because he was so full of life. Let me read you. There's this excerpt from one of his debate opponents that I think is unbelievable. L listen to what uh, he says. He says, to hear Chesterton's howl of joy 
to see him double himself up in agony of laughter at my personal insults. So they're roasting each other and Chesterton just thinks that other guy's so funny. And the crowd is like, I don't know what that guy has, but I like what that guy has. He goes on to say, um, to watch the effect of his sportsmanship on a shocked audience who were won by mirth and quarks of joy. I carried away from that room a respect and an admiration for this philosophical Peter Pan, this kindly and gallant cherub. It was amazing, gigantic, deadly, and delicious. Nothing like it has ever been done before. That's his opponent writing about that. He was so full of life. And then they would go out to dinner afterwards. Let your conversation be so full of grace and seasoned with salt that you would know how to answer everyone. It's not cold logic apologetics that wins people's heart. It's love and it's joy. It's not smooth presentation. It's grace and it's salt. We have that. We can have that. I'm going to do something I've never done before in church. How many of you in the room have ever heard of the heavy metal band Corn? Okay. <laughs> All right, so five people. Great. These guys were huge in the 90s. Uh, they were huge, and they're still, they still exist, and they're still actually uh, pretty well known. Um, I want to talk specifically about one member of this band, and his name's Brian Welch. He was the guitarist, one of two guitarists in the band, and what I'm going to tell you is from his autobiography called Save Me, from myself. And I just, want, I just want you to see the open doors uh, in his story and realize that those open doors exist in the people around us as well. These guys were huge. Everything that you can imagine a rock star doing, they were doing. Every drug. And, this, and his big thing was meth. And he was just, every day, he was completely out of his mind on meth. Um, and he hated, he hated being addicted. But when he was sober, he did not like the person he was. And so it was easier to just live with his addiction. And he's in this constant spiral, just this constant agony of like, I don't want to get sober because I hate that guy. I don't want to be addicted because I don't like being controlled by this thing. Just constant, right? So his personal success is skyrocketing. And by the way, uh, if you guys are going to leave here and go Spotify some corn music, be warned, right? It's not church music. But he writes in his autobiography that everything in his life is falling apart. Everything's falling apart except for one thing. And that one thing is he was pretty good at managing money. He was pretty good at that. You wouldn't think, you know, meth, rock star, pretty good at managing money. And so he had gotten involved with a couple guys in some real estate adventures, Doug and Eric. This is all from his autobiography, which it, it's really good. Doug and Eric, and uh, he likes them. There's something about Doug and Eric that he likes. They're, he says that they're positive, and I, you, you can imagine what's coming about Doug and Eric that he likes, right? So one day he's emailing them about real estate deals, and he just starts to hint at how unhappy he is in life. His wife has left him. He's got this little baby daughter. He doesn't know what to do. He knows he needs something more from, for her. He's got all the money in the world, and he's emailing these guys. Uh, and he's miserable. He's looking for an open door, right? Looking for an open door. Emailing Doug and Eric. A couple days later, Eric writes back out of the blue. And this is the email. He's got it in his book. Brian, this is, this is the rock star Brian. 
Uh, and just imagine you're a guy working with this rock star. You know, you probably feel kind of cool about this. There's all this money on the line and you're emailing something like this. Brian, not to get weird on you or anything. And he's saying that because he's about to acknowledge something that he believes is supernatural that not all people are going to accept. But I was reading my Bible this morning and you came to mind when I read this verse. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. There you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know why, but I had a very strong feeling that this would mean something to you and that I should jump on an email and send it to you. Please don't take it wrong. All the best, Eric. Now, the whole testimony is really compelling, but he ends up going to church with Eric, and he is high on meth and hasn't slept in three days. And he writes in his book, church people were still weirder than he was, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> but the sermon that morning was Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. That email was an open door. And here's a picture of him just recently uh, preaching, sharing his testimony at a church. Imagine trying to decide if you're going to send an email about a Bible verse to a rock star. We pray for open doors. We live for open doors. It is one of the highest honors of our lives if we get to be extension cords where we get to help someone else plug into Jesus. Can I say something just kind of personal? I'm running over time, but I just want to say this because I think this is important. I want everybody in the room to know it. I believe God is doing something special at our church. Whether you want that to be true or not, you may like things the way that they are, but I believe he's doing something profound and moving, and I love it. I love getting to be a part of it, but I think God even has more for us that he wants to do, and he wants to use you to do it. He wants you to be that extension cord in someone's life, plugging someone else in to Jesus. I want us to be able to look back 20 years from now and be able to reminisce with people whose lives are radically altered because of the transformation of Jesus Christ in them. We're going to sing a song in closing. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up and I invite you to stand as well. But I just invite you to reflect on the idea that we get to pray to a supernatural divine being that he would intervene in the circumstances of others' lives and our own lives and we get to be, uh, help, we get to help people walk through these open doors. Let's sing together.